I, I want to make sure that our listeners understand what we're saying here, because this has some frightening implications. It becomes a, a dangerous game of musical chairs, and the plaintiff's attorney will dissect it without mercy. This is just one more story about the aggressiveness and overreaching uh, behavior of medical boards. Hey, Rick Carter, Greg Henry, the August issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. Uh, we have a special guest this month, Mark Calvert. Mark was with us uh, two years ago. Mark's a plaintiff. No, no, cut. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misspoke. <laughs> That's okay. Defense, defense attorney who has his own practice in Houston and was introduced to us by Amoma 2. Uh, and Amo says to say hello. Uh, I guess they've done some cardiology cases together. But since the uh, last time we spoke, I think uh, Mark has uh, had the opportunity to see us at our worst <laughs> again. <laughs> Mark, why don't you uh, lead off? It's great to be with you guys. And uh, hello to everybody. I hope the summer's going well. Um, so we've talked about uh, some repetitive issues over the years, and one of the things I wanted to jump into was this idea of impairment. Uh, first of all, um, you know, just kind of a public service announcement. If anybody's struggling with uh, impairment or substance abuse, I encourage you to to reach out to available resources immediately, um, and 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 do not wait and compound things with some type of uh, tragic. Uh, medical um, uh, situation um, where impairment could be tied to it. Not only are those tough cases to defend, but they can be uh, career ruining, uh, and, and not to mention destroying the life of, uh, of a patient and, and their family. So um, the facts of this first case study uh, relate to that somewhat. Um, so I'll just give you a little bit of a synopsis. Uh, April 19th, um, roughly 8.30, the nurse manager of a facility calls the supervising doctor who's off-site and reports that the doctor at the facility, the emergency room doctor, uh, was actually in the on-call room, door locked, and he's not responding. Uh, the supervising doctor actually thought that the guy may have had some kind of medical emergency, maybe a stroke or something, and he called the doctor's wife to see if there's anything wrong that she knew about, and there wasn't anything. Uh, he then called a doctor to go and uh, drive over there, evaluate the doctor at the facility, uh, and take over patient care. And uh, he then called higher-ups in the organization and got the ball rolling on alerting leadership of this uh, situation. Uh, the doctor who had been uh, uh, asked to go there and replace the, the, the doctor they couldn't get out of the room, the on-call room, he arrived at the facility, he conducted an assessment, and reported to the supervising doctor that there was evidence of intoxication. Uh, the impaired doctor was sequestered in the on-call room. Blood was drawn in order to run an alcohol or drug screen. The supervising doctor went ahead and traveled to the facility, which was um, some distance away. He reviewed all the charts that the doctor had seen um, of the patient the doctor had seen previously to confirm that appropriate care was provided. He actually placed a call to one of the patients who he felt like might need a, a little bit more uh, a care and asked them to return. Uh, the impaired doctor was immediately removed from all scheduled shifts, uh, was informed of that change in schedule, 
And the impaired doctor told the supervising doctors that he had reported himself to the, uh, the physician health program with the board and was actually packing to leave for the rehabilitation program that next day uh, when, they, when they reached out to him. So you think that the story's basically over. Well, it um, turned into a bit of a nightmare because the impaired doctor self-reported and the board opened up an investigation. But here's the kicker. Um, the other doctors were reported to the Texas Medical Board because they did not report the impaired doctor. Uh, now, behind hold on this, one second. One yes. second, Mark. Yes. Are you giving us the the impression that there is an implied duty of other physicians to report this doctor? Is this an affirmative duty for us to report, even if they had no reason to suspect this sort of thing? I mean, I, I want to make sure that our listeners understand what we're saying here, because this has some frightening implications. Yes, I mean, it really does. And I wanted to get this out on the table because I knew that you guys with your experience and, and uh, good uh, you know, wisdom and judgment could weigh in on this because it was uh, uh, quite a saga. And so in Texas, there's a specific statute where um, a doctor is required to report uh, to the board uh, if, in their opinion, um, the physician poses a continuing threat to the public welfare through the practice of medicine. That's the standard in Texas. And I'm sure that most other states, I'd be surprised, in fact, if all other states didn't have some type of similar statutory requirement. And it's pretty broad. And uh, I felt like it was used against about four doctors, four other doctors, unfairly. Now, what you want to keep in mind in this situation is the guy had self-reported. Yes, he was found impaired, but none of the other doctors had any reason to suspect that he had an alcohol problem. And this hadn't happened before. This was a case of, 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 of first blush. And uh, the board went after these guys pretty hard. I went to the, to the hearing before the Texas Medical Board for three of them. And I was shocked at how aggressive uh, the panel was against the doctors who weren't impaired. And the thing that was really galling is the doctor who was impaired had had his license suspended. I mean, this was on the news. It was kind of a little bit of a scandal. But his license had already been put back in good stead. And so they're going after doctors who they say should have known and should have reported him, even though the doctor had reported himself and his own suspension had been resolved and he had resumed practicing medicine. And these guys are having to go up there and defend themselves. And that's um, only because they were partners, not that they should have known because they had observed any abnormal behavior. Is that correct? Well, it was both. They were in supervisory positions, but um, they also uh, went after the guy who uh, went to replace the impaired doctor, and he was not in a supervisory position. And they said, you should have reported him. But again, this guy self-reported. So it was kind of a Soviet Union, uh, you know, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn nightmare 
of of tattling on friends when they've already tattled on themselves. And uh, I remember the lay member of that Texas panel was a was an older woman, and she just looked at us and said, "You were wrong. You should report any time you suspect anything." And uh, think of the Pandora's box that that opens. I mean, because somebody may not be acting in a in a pristine, uh, perfect way, and they're in the you know room next to you, you're supposed to make a, a an anonymous call to the board to have them come investigate this person. I mean, it 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 really kind of reeks of overcorrection in this. Uh, politically correct uh, environment that we're, that we're operating in. And I wanted to get it out on the table because doctors need to be aware of it. First of all, if you have a, a substance abuse problem, obviously get some help. But uh, secondarily, you've got to be aware of the statute in your state. What are your obligations? We were able to win it and get it dismissed because the wording of the statute was was the get out of jail free card in in their opinion he was no longer a threat to patient welfare he had been removed from the schedule he was in a rehab program in fact the texas medical board had you know eventually cleared him and put him back to work so uh he they didn't violate the statute we had reports from other emergency medicine doctors weighing in on this we actually had an ethics professor from the law school uh draft a report for us um, but still, they drug them up to Austin and made them answer uh, uh, questions as if they had, um, as if they had, uh, you know, been child abusers, and it, it you, was a, a debacle. Do you get the impression, Mark, that this was done as sort of a show trial to put the fear of God in every other doctor in the state? I mean, is that what they were trying to do? Was to act tough, look tough, you know? to make sure that other people paid attention to this? I mean, what's the purpose of torturing these three, three docs? Well, I think that that is a big part of it. Um, I think a lot of the medical boards, look, we've talked about this before. I think when I came two or three years ago, you know, the first thing I want to do is salute those that will get into the arena. And we have so many great members of the Texas medical board. Uh, and it, to me, it's running better than ever. But there are pockets of social justice warriors, for lack of a better phrase, who do want um, – they want that kind of press. They want some heads on the wall. And um, they they made a revealing comment to me. I could sense they were very frustrated, and I was frustrated with them. I'm like, you're talking to the guys who are not the impaired doctors. <laughs> and they right, did everything exactly. they could <laughs> to remove him from the situation because they kept talking about, you know, what if one of your kids was uh, injured by an impaired doctor? And they're, they're looking at him saying, I don't have a substance abuse problem. I mean, I'm not impaired. Um but they made a revealing comment, and I don't know the the doctor's name, and it's probably best that, that I don't know it, but uh, there's a surgeon out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area who um, had uh, uh, kind of a remarkable string of, of bad outcomes, and it turns out he was impaired. And I think there were four or five people that were uh, killed on his watch with surgical complications. And in front of the medical board, the doctor member of the panel said, we don't want a repeat of Dr. So-and-so. Uh, that gives them a lot of bad press, puts a lot of pressure on them. But they overcompensate and throw out too big of a net, and they've got a bunch of um, very innocent people having to go up there 
and account for something that um, really, I mean, they were completely innocent of any wrongdoing. And I dare say that across the, the, the state, maybe the nation, uh, you're probably talking about 99% of the doctors who would have done it the way they did it. They made sure that he was removed from the schedule. He had self-reported. They made sure the higher-ups were aware. All the I's were dotted. All the T's were crossed. Now, here's what's interesting is who turned them in? I mean, in Texas, you have a, a confidential reporting uh, re uh, aspect. And we suspect that it was a kind of a disgruntled uh, tech who had made some negative comments about how a family member of his had been injured by a, a drunk driver and he had no, no, um, you know, mercy or, or, or any kind of understanding about why this doctor wouldn't get kind of the full weight of the law on top of him. And we think he filed the, uh, the complaints against these doctors, uh, because he felt like they weren't, um, uh, sharing his opinion to really headhunt and go after the guy. You've made an um, interesting point here because my experience was that the nurses and the techs always knew before the chief of the department and the other doctors if somebody was impaired. Because the truth is doctors don't work with each other. They work next to each other or they trade shifts but the nurses really get to see this kind of behavior before we do. And I know that some of them don't take it well, particularly if they have mentioned it to one of the supervising docs and they have been sort of giving, been given short shift on this thing. Uh, somebody is going to be unhappy when it finally comes down. And I, uh, I, I, I can understand that somebody sitting off to the side may have some anger there that it wasn't picked up earlier by one of the docs. You know, it, it, uh, it happens, um, I'm sure, on a regular basis. You know, there's some very good data to suggest that just being a physician puts you at much higher risk than the public at large for being an abuser of drugs. Uh, particularly opioids and uh, and uh, certain and uh, amphetamines, things like that, much more common in medical people than if we just uh, you know pull people at random off the street. And I think that may be just because of the availability of the medications, and that uh, it is a it is a serious it is a serious problem. We're no different than anyone else in the society that way. No, I think that's well said. And uh, I know that this particular techie, uh, tech, whatever he was, I can't remember specifically, but he did view himself as a whistleblower. And hey, let's face it, there are some uh, arenas in the emergency uh, medicine departments where it's kind of an animal house mentality. You know, there's there are doctors that are, are um, uh, doing things that aren't aren't right, and uh, it grinds on the faces of the staff. The nurses and the techs are aware of it. So um, my advice is those are tough cases to defend. You know, you have a little kid that's injured, and it turns out that the doctor may have been impaired. That's a tough case to defend. And plaintiff's attorneys smell that, and they'll come after that hammer and tong. They'll try to get the medical records of the doctor. Um, and, uh, the chase is on. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not naive and I'm, I'm not saying that the doctors are always right, but I felt like this situation of the obligation to report a colleague 
is really something that can take on a life of its own. So what is my advice to uh, doctors listening to this? Be aware of what your requirements are per the statute of your state. That should be easy to look up. If you're in Kansas, just Google requirements to report impaired health care providers under Kansas law. You will be instructed what you need to do, even maybe seek out an attorney uh, to get some help on that. I don't think there should be a willy-nilly report anything that happens. But if you legitimately are of the opinion that there's some danger to patient welfare, uh, you might be obligated to make that report. So, Just two or three months ago, Mark, Rick and I reported on a case where an uh, emergency physician head of a department was sued successfully for $7.5 million because in the letter of recommendation he wrote for a fellow physician, he did not mention the fact that this gentleman had had a drug problem. Mm. Sure enough, he goes to another hospital, uh, and he was an anesthesiologist, by the way, not an emergency doc. If there's ever been a group of doctors who have easy access to medications, it's anesthesia. Yeah. And, of course, he was he was uh, high when something bad happened and a young woman died. Mm. So the group went back against his original group and said, the letter you sent us was deliberately misleading. You knew or should have known he'd be put in that position again. We lost money to the plaintiff on this. We want all our money back. And by the way, they did win. <laughs> and the wow. uh, and the original guy who wrote the letter uh, and his group and the hospital for which he worked had to pony up seven and a half million bucks. Wow. So if, if you think that writing a letter of recommendation doesn't carry some risk with it, uh, it does. There's no question about that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, be careful. Be careful what you put in writing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Mark, it seems that uh, this is just one more story about the aggressiveness and overreaching uh, behavior of medical boards. They seem to feel that they are the defenders of the public and um, the threshold for their taking action seems to be very low. And I think also the, um, the sentences that they, that they um, impose on these physicians is, are also very, 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 very rigid. So I, I, I think that your, your warning is, is kind of like it's everything you described sound like they did everything perfectly. And so, oh. and the, the idea that they would be brought up, Unless, unless there was any prior acts of this physician that would have suggested that he had a problem or she had a problem, as uh, indicated by any of the medical staff or the uh, people working in the department or anything like that. But if there wasn't, what more could they have asked for? I know, and we even got a report from the impaired doctor who said, these guys didn't know anything about my problem. It wasn't something that manifested itself at work where they would know about it. I had never had any other prior incident. You know, I'm getting help. I'm back on my pins. And they still made them come up to Austin and uh, explain themselves. So it was um, it, it was uh, surreal, to, to say the least. But but I think everybody needs to be be aware. And you're right, There there is kind of a a muscular heavy handedness to these licensing boards. And some of it is they, they feel, and they do have a duty to, to protect the public. They're very sensitive to trying to, uh, 
to do their job, to not be in the paper, to not have the thing go wrong. But again, um, you know, just like uh, cops that are arresting uh, innocent people in order to get the bad guys, you have to you have to be better than that, and and they have to have a better screen and a better antenna of who really needs the discipline. It's not the people who aren't impaired <laughs> who took him off the schedule and made sure he was in rehab. That's not the guys to punish. So, um, I've been, I've been involved in. Uh multiple states and going to give opinions uh, to the boards. Some states, very reasonable, not a problem at all. And then you have others. Uh, the most draconian I've ever dealt with was the state of New York, oh. where uh, and, and they are like stormtroopers. Uh, <laughs> and they've gotten a group of doctors who, you know, uh, get some money for reviewing these things as well. And, uh, by God, they're going to find a bad guy, <laughs> whether there's a bad guy there or not. And, uh, some of it is, is quite frankly, these, these people are practicing the standard of care and, uh, the, these boards want to invent a new standard of care. They, they'd like to say they're going to reform medicine and, uh, half the board in, uh, New York were uh, were uh, attorneys, and if you want to find a group that that knows everything there is to know about the practice of medicine, uh, take a group of attorneys. Uh, <laughs> it's it's very difficult to to deal with. Um, while we're while we're uh, talking about some of these odd cases, a few months ago or last month, I, I think Rick and I commented on a case called Chanel versus Tom's. This was a case in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that asserted, asserted that a physician may not fulfill through an intermediary the duty of providing su sufficient information to obtain informed consent. Now, that particular case uh, flies in the face of what happens every day uh, in hospitals across the United States. And basically, they're saying you can't send the nurse in or your PA in or somebody like that to get the informed consent signed, you know, carry on the discussion. What do you think about that at this point in time? You know, consent uh, has been a, a long debated uh, legal issue. In, in Texas, the doctor is responsible for consent, but uh, as a practical matter, if you say if it's a surgical procedure, the medical board has listed out what needs to be on the consent form. And if the patient signs it and those risks are on the consent form, consent is deemed to have been obtained. Um, I'm a little torn on it because my son had surgery about a year ago. My wife had surgery a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, I've defended healthcare providers for 31 years, but I was a little bit surprised at the, the lack of information that was communicated by the doctor in our visits. And then just the kind of perfunctory sign here on this electric tablet and, and, and voila, you're aware of it. Right. Um, I, um, I just, I'm not a homer for bad medical care. I, 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 the, the great doctors, uh, and, and you out there know who you are. There's just a touch in dealing with people so that you, you properly inform them of, of what may be happening. Um, and, um, 
I, uh, I can defend uh, the skimpy consent, and I do think it does tend to paralyze the, the practice if you don't let the, the mid-level people talk about it. But in this day of, of technology, why can't, why can't there be a, a, an iPad where you've got a two-minute discussion of the procedure you're about to do? We're going to do a spinal tap. And I want you to watch this minute and a half procedure on what basically it's it, it, we're doing and what some of the main risks are. And then you are going to have the opportunity to accept or decline this this treatment, which we recommend that you have today in the emergency room. And you put an iPad in front of them and they watch a 90 second cartoon thing that's well done and it bullet points the risks. I mean, how hard is that? You know, we can do that, can't we? But when you don't tell somebody and then you end up um, you know, botching the thing up and they say, look, no one ever told me that this was a potential risk. Um, I think there's a lot of people on the jury that say, Hey, we just expect a little bit more. Um, well, I'm, a, I'm advising on a case right now where they had an offsite neurologist who's using his, uh, neurology robot to decide whether somebody needs TPA for stroke. Mm. And the emergency physicians have been told you stay out of it. Now, there's no letter uh, of indemnification from the hospital about this that says, you know, should you be get in trouble, be named in one of these actions, we'll assume we'll all up. costs, <laughs> pay all charges, all that sort of thing. But that's exactly what happened. Some guy, uh, some neurologist said, yeah, now this it's pretty much proven now and there's really no problems. Well, what do you think happened? Yeah. <laughs> the patient yeah. bled and the patient uh, had very minimal symptomatology oh, boy. and, um, you know, had a little trouble with speech. Um, and uh, Rick and I both have friends who uh, have had small lacunar infarcts and have refused any other therapy because they know a lot of that stuff gets better. Well, this family sitting there. The remote neurologist says, no problem, uh, essentially. He said, we got magic medicine for you. And, of mm -hmm. course, then they bleed to death in their head. Um, and uh, the, good, the, the fortunate ones bleed to death. The others just bleed and live for months. But, yeah. the, uh, but the emergency doc was also named in this saying, uh, you should have intervened, you should have listened to the discussion, you should have brought up the negative side effects, and uh, this is going to be a big case, because I think yeah. when, this, when this gets decided, um, it's going to put a chill into a lot of this telemedicine stuff where somebody else thinks they can take over everything. In fact, the reason I got the call is these guys were writing their letter of indemnification and wanted to know if there's anything else they should put in it. Wow. But uh, they're so mad at the hospital for not picking up their costs and their charges because the hospital had retained this service so that their neurologist did not have to come in at night to see patients. It's, you know, uh, when, when that kind of stuff surfaces, uh, the rank and file on a jury are just they're going to get angry. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a defender of doctors. We have to be careful wandering into those types of hornet's nests. And I think emergency medicine doctors need to kind of have a, you know, um, a, a big picture perspective. Uh, what are they buying into and be aware of it and note in the record 
and um, and maybe intervene a little bit. I know that's really hard to do in the real world, but then you have these catastrophes that you just described, and those are career ruining cases. So that's tough. That's tough. I I have such admiration for the emergency medicine doctors. We handle a lot of these cases. You guys are on the front lines. You see the most difficult patients. Um, and you have to make judgment calls and, uh, you know, the, the things that I would really encourage you is to be tight on your records. We've talked about that before. Um, be, um, very, uh, skilled at, uh, reliance on your, uh, consultants and, and the staff and mid levels and, uh, keep, a keep a close check on how busy you are, um, you know, because it, it, it becomes a, a dangerous game of musical chairs running around so fast uh, that something slips through and, and the plaintiff's attorney will dissect it without mercy. So, yeah. um, Mark, anyway, uh, I've sorry, uh, often uh, asked this question uh, over the years and I've never gotten the answer that I wanted to hear uh, that, in fact, being too busy in the emergency department and a mistake occurs that, in fact, uh, the lawyer for the injured party goes back and says, listen, you are seeing simultaneously, according to the records and the logbooks, about uh, 12 patients. And in the process of seeing these 12 patients, our patient got harmed because uh, of an oversight that uh, was, was caused by you. Um, we think that um, that was one of the causes of this problem. And um, is crowding ever been used successfully that, uh, that you're aware of to, uh, to basically help nail a doctor? I think it is something that is used, and where we see it um, used a lot is uh, with overworked nursing staff. And that's when they really exploit the hospital. And and I think the same thing can be used uh, with doctors, whether it's emergency medicine doctors or uh, uh, primary care doctors. I just helped a doctor before the medical board. He was actually reported by his own group. And he said um, they um, he, he separated from them employment-wise. They were highly critical of him because he was not seeing enough patients. Um, so it does tend to bubble to the surface. And let's um, let's face it. I mean, if you're responsible for 12 patients versus two, um, there's going to be some grounders that are going to go go between your legs and some and some uh, pop flies that you're uh, going to get lost in the sun. And um, so, yeah, I think the good plaintiff's attorney can exploit that. Now, it's more institutional. Uh, certainly, the doctor can say, "Look, you know, I can't turn people away, and I'm dancing as fast as I can." And I think reasonable people can understand that. But if it uh, sniffs of a money-making venture, if it uh, if the if there's a smell of an assembly line that's just turned up too fast, you know, we're trying to wait, make more uh, more uh, um, plastic balls in China, and so instead of making a thousand, we make ten thousand a day. Um, you know, the people who are making those balls are 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 fatigued, and their judgment isn't good, and the balls aren't as good, and we just keep speeding up the treadmill. One of my favorite films, I recommend it to those who are listening, uh, favorite films from 20 years ago or so is uh, Jerry Maguire. And uh, he's a sports agent, and it starts out with him typing a manifesto that basically says, less clients and more time for the clients. 
And of course, he's fired from his company. Everybody views it as a suicide mission. But, you know, I remember watching it. I was kind of young and in the heart of things. And I thought it may be a little bit of a leftist socialist outlook. But by gosh, you do a better job when you have less things that you're juggling. It's just it's just the truth. So um, I think emergency medicine is a, a kind of a particular laboratory for how things can go wrong when people are are having too much to do. And the other thing, and I'll throw it out there, I mean, I'm not trying to step on any toes. I think the vast majority of emergency medicine doctors are elite and great, and, and certainly that's the, my experience. But I also sense a fair amount of how do I get the shift at the place where I don't have to do a lot of work, where I can get the MBA on the side, or I can, I can learn how to play the guitar, or I can... I can sleep from, you know, 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. and never see anybody. And if somebody comes in, they can just wait while I'm sleeping. Some of those things surface. And I'll tell you, if something has not gone right, it makes you it makes you want to wretch when you realize that that's the evasion and the dodging that is going on with a small fraction. And again, plaintiff's attorneys get a whiff of that and um, they're on you. I mean, like yep. a great white shark. Well, I, I've, we've seen a couple of cases now, I've seen them, where people have been posting things on social media, on their <laughs> accounts, talking about work, uh, I'm stressed, I'm this and that. Yeah. Is all of that available to plaintiff's counsel? You have to assume it is. You know, they can tap into the metadata of the hospital. They're getting into the to the social media um, if they if it's not public, they'll get the judge to order it. And um, depending on where you're at, I mean, uh, we have some bastions of of conservative judges in Texas, but not as many as we used to. And so there's much more of a willingness to say, yes, you need to turn over the Instagram and you need to to turn over the texting. And uh, we are going to allow the plaintiffs to see your um, you know the medicines you're taking, doctor. And so all of those things can come into play. So I think it's a good, I think it's a very good point. Um, uh, Mark, lecture, speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, doctor behavior, you, uh, when we were t lining up our call together, you uh, sent the video, I think that the entire world has seen <laughs> of a, uh, a physician beating up on a person, uh, insulting them, demeaning them. Uh, obviously, I thought that was the uh, the behavior of a decompensated physician, a physician who was over the edge and uh, yeah. who needed a, a good vacation. But obviously, this physician lost their job. It's unlikely that they will be uh, readily hired unless they are out in the boonies someplace where they are desperate for a physician. And um, it, it it also goes to show the uh, surreptitious filming of uh, instances in the emergency department. Yeah, I, um, I give quite a few uh, presentations for doctor groups, and uh, we, we pull up those types of uh, uh, recordings, and um, most of them are done without the doctor's knowledge or consent. And so uh, they, they pose uh, you know, a particular um, risk. But um, uh, I was shocked by this California doctor. I don't know who she is. Um, 
I don't know what her personality was on the best of days, but this was a, 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 a terrible display. And what made it to me even worse is the patient's father who was in the room, I think was completely with her being aware of it was recording her. And it makes you wonder, how does she act when she's not aware she's being recorded? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't exactly putting her best foot forward, uh, you know, where, you know, he said he was having trouble inhaling or something. And she's like, are you dead, sir? You must be dead. Uh, you know, <laughs> condescending. I went to lift him against his will, accused him of seeking narcotics. Everything, everything she thought she said, look, uh, you I mean, Rick, you probably hit it on the head when you said this kind of was evidence of somebody who needs a break, who needs to take some time off because just uh, just frazzled and impatient and uh, assuming the worst. And um, wow, I mean, get out of the, you know, get out of it for a while then if that's how you're going to treat people because uh, um, it's it looks terrible. It's hard to defend. And um, uh, so, you know, bigger picture, I would say to everybody out there, you have been and are being recorded. Sometimes you know it, sometimes you don't. I'm not saying that every time a patient does it that they're that that it's some type of a nefarious thing. Um, sometimes I think there's language issues. There's also an understanding issue. You know, when a when a busy emergency medicine doctor comes in and spends you know a very short time and they're rattling off medical terms and other thoughts. Some people want to record that so that they can Google the terms or they can have a chance to listen to it later. Um, but there are some who don't trust anybody, and this is a bit of a setup. Uh, it's just like police in a you know in a traffic situation. All those phones come out, and you better be on your A game. Of course, it depends on the state as to whether or not you can be recorded against your will. But um, just like evidently uh, Cohen has uh, recorded Trump. Um, and I think in New York, only one party needs to be aware. That's the same thing in Texas. I think my feeling is most states are going more to that just from a protective point of view that not everybody has to be aware of the recording. So um, all doctors need to assume they're being recorded to be on their A game and to watch what they say and, and watch how they act. And I've had a fair number of doctors question me at presentations and say, I don't want them recording when I'm drawing blood or when I'm when I'm doing the spinal tap or, or whatever, when I'm doing the stitches. Um, I think you can say, look, we don't allow a recording uh, of, of this due to HIPAA. Uh, and and during, during this procedure, I'm going to ask, ask you to leave if you're going to record this and be nice about it. But ultimately, it's not worth fighting about. Just do it right. Just be on, you know, uh, giving, giving it your best, acting reasonably. Um, I mean, the truth shall set you free. So just do a really, really good job. But um, doctors have really dug themselves into some holes by um, by not realizing that their uh, actions and words are being captured. Yeah, we covered this uh, in a prior issue and went through the states where only one person needs to have give permission for photography, which is usually the photographer <laughs> and, and and uh, we we got into the issue of um, the obligation of the emergency physician is to uh, perform a medical screening exam to determine whether there is a HICVA-defined medical emergency taking place. And that if there is not, that physician can say um, there's no um, 
requirement that I see you any further. And if you continue to uh, take this video, um, I would I uh, I would ask that you go elsewhere. Now, obviously, that is a very polar kind of way of dealing with it. Uh, right. Uh, that's one extreme, but it's kind of like it's it, it meets the letter of the law, but certainly not the spirit of the law. No, that um, uh, I mean, this is an analysis that we need to continue to have, and there's going to be a lot of incidents in the future. Uh, one of the pitches that I say, and I, I, I it's not to scare anybody, but it's just the reality is, is in 30 years, I've noticed two big changes. One is I think the mental health of the population of patients has deteriorated some. So you have people who are a little bit more desperate, people a little more willing to mix it up, report you, put a, a negative Yelp review, whatever it is. And then the other thing I've noticed is that over time, I think the quality of the staff, the nursing staff, even the front office staff has declined somewhat. So puts a lot of pressure on the doctors to have those two things uh, at issue. In fact, one case study, since we're talking about demeanor and difficult patients, um, this was a, a, a lady, professional lady, who presented to the emergency room for a hand injury. A washer lid had fell on her hand several days before. And she came to the emergency room late on a Saturday night, actually after being at the movie with her daughter. Uh, the exam revealed, you know, no wound, normal range of motion, some tenderness. Uh, they did an uh, x-ray, and there was no evidence of any uh, fracture or dislocation. But the patient wasn't satisfied and demanded more uh, uh, testing, if you will, and was very argumentative. Um, and the doctor explained to her that everything was going to work out and she could follow up with a hand specialist after she left the emergency room, you know, next business day. She continued to uh, fight with the doctor, asked for his card, um, was very disrespectful. And uh, then she said that she was a physician recruiter and that she would be reporting him to the Texas Medical Board. And she said, and what are you going to do to me? Oh, that's right. Nothing. And she walked out. And she did report him to the Texas Medical Board. Now, isn't that a kick in the head? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you, you've got a patient with virtually no injury who is completely out of control with a good doctor. And then she can report this thing to the um to the uh, Texas Medical Board. In fact, the essence of the complaint was, quote, that he was rude and unprofessional and that he belittled her and made her cry, which is not true. She walked out with a security guard who noted that she was laughing all the way down the hall. God, so. <laughs> I was just going to say, on that basis, uh, that's about three-quarters of the patients we see uh, we reassure yeah. them of the fact that, that they're going to do well at this moment in time. I'd, I'd hate to think that, that uh, we have to start practicing bizarre medicine yeah. uh, based on a threat to the, to the medical board. That would, that would not be right. No, um, no. Yeah, there are, there are things in the world not right, you know, changing the name of IHOP to IHOB. <laughs> I mean, that's just not right. And in fact, 
Hey, 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 let me get this off my chest right now. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> I we like an expensive attorney. You know, we're paying by the hour here. You know. Yeah, I understand <laughs> that. I understand that. But uh, for those of us who've been going to the IHOP for many years, senior breakfast, six ninety five. Love it. Uh, bottom line is now they 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 realized that they'd screwed up. You know that. They did this sort of survey. They looked at their letters. Everybody got mad that it's going to be IHOB. So now they put out a series of commercials that said, we were just kidding, and we're not going to change our names. <laughs> you know what? Just be honest about it and say, we kind of screwed up. We didn't realize how much you liked the breakfast and uh, and so and just what America needed was another mediocre burger joint. <laughs> I think you fell for the whole thing. This is a publicity stunt from the beginning, for crying out loud. Yeah. Hey, listen, Mark, do you have any good news? <laughs> well, or, you're not in the good news business, I don't think. I, you know, I I kind of it's it's kind of like you guys. I mean, the good news you don't you don't really see in the emergency room. You don't see a lot of good news. People come there because there's an um, emergency. Um, you know, one common area we've talked about before are the bounce backs, and uh, um, you know, I. I guess that's not something that we need to 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 beat to death. But um, uh, one case that comes to mind is one that involved a 18 month old boy uh, whose parents brought him to the ER complaining of a cough, uh, moderate severity. Fever was also noted. The ER doc took a chest X-ray, found steeple sign in the lateral neck view. Diagnosed with croup, sent him home the same night with instructions to return if the fever persisted or uh, reached 104. Patient was sent home with antibiotics prescriptions. Uh, returned to the emergency department the next evening in significant distress. Uh, noted to be cool, pale, cyanotic. Um, uh, they attempted to uh, intubate the patient. Noticed that the abdomen was ri rising. Uh, so they reattempted the intubation, transferred down to Texas Children's Hospital, and uh, the child was diagnosed with a hypoxic brain uh, insult. Um, and so you have a, a bounce-back situation with the baby. You also have a, a baby with a fever that was discharged. Uh, allegations against the first doctor, improper reading of the chest X-ray, uh, failed to note the baby was suffering from malignant bacterial tracheitis consistent with the fever, uh, alleged that the failure led to a delay in treatment that would have averted the respiratory collapse that occurred the next day, also alleged it was negligent to send a patient with a history of respiratory issues home without completely resolving current respiratory problems, the allegations against the doctor of the next night, the second ER doctor, is it took too long to intubate, uh, should have more quickly assessed the need and transferred to a higher level of care quicker. Um, so what's the takeaways here? You know, um, I doing this a long time and you guys are, are farther down the road than I am, but, uh, whenever it involves a child, you just have to really, um, raise the, raise the, uh, antenna, uh, and um, be very careful sending home a child with a fever. There's just no downside to getting them to a higher level of care. Nothing's good when it goes south with a child, uh, for that child, for that family, and in the eyes of the jury. Uh, it, there's a lot of sympathy there. Um, 
the adage I use a lot with my doctors is no one minds you playing Russian roulette as long as the gun is pointed at your head. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you've got the gun pointed at other people's head, um, uh, karma is uh, it can come back pretty strong when it doesn't go well. well so um, I'd watch the bounce backs pretty close. But that particular case... Uh, you realize for them to say you can't let someone go home until the respiratory problem is resolved would mean we'd keep half the right. kids who come in to the emergency right. department. I, right. I mean, it's unreasonable. It, it is unreasonable. It's yeah. it's selective. And at some point in time, there's got to be something called judgment here yeah. As, yeah. As, as to who's a problem. Each one of us has seen epiglottitis and croup and that sort of thing. Not always easy. Uh, and so a little observation goes a long way. But I'll tell you, um, if they're looking for perfection, they, they, they should get a religion and yeah. not health care. Because healthcare is never perfect. Hey, listen, well, did, you, did you hear what Mark said? That that you and I are a little further down the road, and he is. <laughs> I thought well, that was a very, very uh, Texas yeah, kind of way he, of saying yeah. you guys are older than I am. Yeah, very, yeah, very yeah. gentlemanly way. I thought. But yeah, what he snuck in there was you guys are about ready to. It, what do they say in Texas? Uh, yeah, this could be your last rodeo or oh. ride off into the sunset or something. You know. Hey, listen, no, you, you know, you guys look exactly the same. I'm talking about wisdom. I mean, because I, <laughs> I will sometimes say, well, you know, I've been doing this 30 years. Well, I know you guys have been doing this 45, 50 years, and you've seen every every trick in the book. But what's the, you know the good news? You asked for a little bit of good news. The doctors who handle those cases. Let's say you send home a child with a fever. The records have got to justify it. That's the main message, really, of this over and over again, is don't cut corners on the records. Have them, have them justify what you're doing. Provide a plausible, reasonable explanation for your treatment plan and your diagnosis. Even if you're wrong, I can still defend you if you can give me something to work with. Well, you know, when your records are skimpy and the patient doesn't do well, we're in trouble. You know, when you d described uh, that case, uh, I think that I was, uh, as soon as I heard the word, you know, fever yeah. and this respiratory distress with, yeah. and and with something that looked like croup, uh, you're talking about an uncommon diagnosis. Bacterial tracheitis is an uncommon diagnosis uh, distinguished from regular old croup because the kids are got high fever. You don't get a high fever with croup. I mean, they have minimal fever at best, and yet the, the trachea can look the same on an x-ray, but in this case, that trachea is infected with staph, and um, I think if you make the wrong diagnosis, uh, you're, gonna, you're going to get an outcome that you are not anticipating, and, and I think that was, frankly, one of the, one of the issues here, unfortunately. Yep. No, I think you're exactly right. And that moves me to another common area, which uh, if we have a moment to talk about what I call the midnight hour. Uh, I mean, you guys have seen it. There, there's so many lawsuits that come from care that is provided on the weekends, shift change, and during that midnight hour in the emergency uh, room. And so um, one of the cases that stands out to me uh, guy comes into the emergency room. He's 23 years old. 
It's 11.30 at night. He's got abdominal pain, fever, vomiting for, for two days. Pulse is 105. Blood pressure 142 or over 81. Temperature 98.9. White blood cell count 26.5. Mm. Uh, triaged and ranked urgent. Past history of bowel problems, hernia, and recent surgery. Physical exam, abdomen soft. Had some tenderness, but no guarding or rebound. CT of the abdomen pelvis indicated small bowel obstruction. The emergency room doctor consulted the surgeon and told the surgeon that the patient was stable. Immediate surgery not indica- uh, not necessary, and the surgeon could come see him the next morning. He admitted the guy to the hospital under the surgeon's name with a diagnosis of obstructed umbilical hernia. During the night, the patient deteriorated, of course. Yeah. The surgeon was not notified of the unstable vitals. Um, he came in, found the guy just not doing well, rushed him to surgery at about 8 a.m. Uh, patient had a heart rate of 147, diaphoretic, complaining of pain. Um, patient suffered respiratory arrest before surgery. Bowel was ischemic but pinked up. Patient never woke up, died 16, uh, six days later from multi-organ failure. Um, the lawsuit was complicated because they sued the hospital, the emergency medicine doctor, and the surgeon. And guess what? There was some uh, finger-pointing going on. Oh, <laughs> how, how would that ever happen? And I'm sure the surgeon said these words, if they'd only told me. If they only properly presented the case on the phone, I'd have been right in there. You know, yeah. I was driving by the hospital. I wanted to be called in. I really did. <laughs> so the so you're hitting the nail on the head, Greg. So the the surgeon and the emergency medicine doctor look friendly. Both of them very good in what they do. But uh, there was some uh, some a little bit of cloudiness on what was communicated back and forth. Uh, and the, the, the surgeon, you know, testified that he wasn't told of the elevated white blood cell count, uh, just that the patient was stable. Uh, he testified that he trusted the emergency room doctor's judgment. Um, and that when he said he didn't need to come in right then he took him at face value. Um, what should the emergency medicine doctor have done? I'm not saying he should have told him to come in. But goodness sake, you got a blood cell, a white blood cell count of 26.5. Don't you tell the consultant that? And most importantly, you note in the record that you told the consulting surgeon that. And let the surgeon make the call. Um, I've had many emergency medicine doctors say, look, these guys get mad when you ask them to come in in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what my response is? Tough. Yeah, that's your problem. <laughs> I mean, don't be a surgeon then. I'm sorry. It's busy. It's it's demanding. And, and they can be grumpy and difficult, and you don't want to catch heck. But, you know, it's your hiney that's uh, on the hot seat when it doesn't go well during the night. And, um, uh, again, note what you told them. And if there's any doubt at all, invite them to come in and look at the patient. They may not have to operate right then, but hand the baton off to them. Uh, and, uh, again, it's that midnight hour thing where you don't want the cardiologist to have to mess with coming in and doing a catheterization. You don't want them to have to mess with the 2 a.m. surgery. Well, you know what a plaintiff's attorney is going to do with that when six or eight hours would made a difference between life or death or a heart transplant or not. They're going to butcher everybody involved that people were farting around with someone else's life because people are tired. 
Yeah. And I know that there is a lot of fatigue, but it doesn't play well in a jury uh, when you have, say, a 23-year-old lost their life because somebody was tired. One of the things that uh, has really become uh, prominent in the discussions of how to make care in hospital safers uh, relate to pass-ons. And, mm. and this is a pass-on in that, um, and one of the issues that comes up is the failure to adequately communicate to the next person uh, what they really should know. And yes. um, I think that it's, it's kind of hard to conceive that a surgeon would not come in with a 20,000 white count in a person who has a fever. Most small bowel obstructions, there's no white count of any consequence, and there's no fever. Yeah. And yeah. and once you do get them, you've got some dead bowel going on or other kinds of nasty things. And and frankly, that's kind of like the ER doc, you know, it's easy for me to be a Monday morning quarterback, but this case was a surgical emergency from the get-go. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I honestly think I honestly think as you listen to these guys, they'll say, "Oh, yeah, they'll get mad, they'll do this, they'll do that." Bottom line is you've only been retained legally to look out for one person's interest and that's the patient right. uh, you were not retained anywhere uh, to take care of sleep patterns of people who's on call tonight who's not on call tonight uh, we've discussed this in one of our shows recently you know sometimes you will have a few people who are disgruntled with you if you gave them that case at executive committee of the hospital with all doctors, the other doctors are going to side with the emergency doc and say, yeah, <laughs> that's tough. You got to come in just like we got to come in. It's, right. it's just part of the deal. If you don't like that, go into dentistry or something, but don't do that. <laughs> Although there is, there is some real fear here because, um, Sometimes people undercall cases and surgeons do come in and they really didn't maybe need to come in. True. Uh, and that may occur a couple of times. I know a situation now where, uh, I guess in the view of the surgeons who came in, they really didn't need to. And, uh, the patient could have been treated as an outpatient, gone home, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and now the physician has a reputation for uh, prematurely calling people in. And so it's like crying wolf. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the next time something bad happens, they're going to say, you know, you call us in all the time. It's and, and, and the whole medical staff is starting to know their whole surgery staff. It, it says the same thing about you, et cetera, et cetera. So that sensitizes the doctor to um, maybe not call. Because, right. uh, you know, he's already gotten the surgeons pissed off at him. So yeah, especially if they're young, you yes, know, exactly. they, they don't yes, want to have exactly that reputation. Right. You know what? You're allowed to overcall it a little bit in your life. You got to remember that all of our residents in training someplace where there's other residencies in the hospital, they call down people all the time for opinions. Mm -hmm. They get used to that. You know, there's no question in my life. Did I call somebody in who didn't take them to the operating room? That doesn't mean it wasn't still perfectly valid to have the surgeon put his hand on the belly. And, well, and I, we, we just, I think we got to get away from this. Uh, 
idea that, oh, we got to take care of everyone's feelings here. You know what? Most docs want to do it right. You're right, Rick. There are some who overcall it. I'm aware of that. But judgment is what we're paid for. And uh, sometimes we got to call people in. I, I, I've got a, another case I got to give you, Mark, before we, uh, before we end this thing up. And this is a case. This is uh, Sarita Kelman versus New York City Health and Hospital Corporation. So it's one of the 10 hospitals in New York which they own. This is about uh, she sued the hospital because, and it was she left the um, an inpatient ward, not the emergency department. But she was a retiree, and that said that uh, they didn't properly teach her how to use crutches. So because <laughs> they didn't do that, I mean, I know this sounds great. Uh, the safe operation. The pluses, the minuses, this, that. Uh, because, and she, she, of course, went home and fell. And while exiting a taxi results in a wrist and ankle fracture. Now, the people of New York, and I understand New York is not Texas. If there can be anything farther than the planet Pluto from Texas, it's New York. <laughs> but they awarded $850,000. There's no doctor around, but they said, you should have properly instructed this older person how to do this, that, and other. Where does this begin and end? Because every night in every emergency department I worked uh, in ever in my life, we probably sent home half a dozen people with crutches. Yep. How much teaching do they do? What's required? What would you in Texas think is reasonable? What would meet the standard of care in Texas to instruct people about crutches? Well, that's it's it's ironic that you mentioned that case because I actually have a case right now that I'm defending for an emergency medicine doctor that is almost identical to that. It's a lady who uh, had crutches and she actually fell in the emergency medicine department and broke her broke her ankle. And she's filed a lawsuit of very similar nature. Um, so my defense lawyer hat says that your duty is to act reasonably. And so inquiring, do you know how to use these? Um, I can even show you how to use these. Oh, I know how to use these. You do? Okay. Seems to be somewhat self-explanatory. That would seem to be reasonable based on the feedback from the patient. Is it reasonable to assume that they know how to use them? Um, maybe. Maybe in Texas it is. Maybe in New York it's not. But I'll go back to something I said earlier. I don't understand why we don't have a litany. You know, we have we have a ton of handouts. You've got, you know, you've got high blood sugar. Here's handouts on diabetes. You've got a a, a wound to your hand. Here's a hand a handout on on caring for a wound uh, on the hand. Why don't we have on the iPad or some other way a 90-second vi vignette that they can watch of somebody walking with crutches? They can download them from YouTube if they have to or just create them very easily. The risk management department, get a nurse, show, you know, figure out every different aspect to walking with cr crutches, show the patient. It takes two minutes. Note in the record that you've shown them and that you've answered all questions, and I feel like you've sealed off the argument. Otherwise, if you don't do that, you really are 
subjecting yourself to the whim of the jury. And everybody's going to disagree on how far you have to go with that. Mark, but isn't there another issue here? I, I, I really agree with the idea that, particularly in the area of informed consents, the iPad basically should have the pros and the cons and the alternatives and the whole kinds of things that should be there. Plus, there should be somebody who is capable and knowledgeable to answer questions. The, the, yes. the iPad's not going to do the whole thing. But right. when it comes to something like crutches, there is a, an element of hand-eye coordination. There and is. Some people are klutzes and other people are not klutzes. And some so, people are 75 and some people are 25. Yes. I mean, the, it, it's not one one size fits all with the use of crutches. Having watched a lot of people leave with crutches, uh, yep. some of them do constitute a danger to themselves and others by virtue of the fact if you're 80, it isn't going to go well. You know, there, yep. there seems to be, uh, in uh, at least in some of the hospitals I was associated with, a policy that the nurse would teach you how to use crutches. Yes. Now, now, whether that that generally would mean showing the person how to do it and watching them do it. And right. I don't think I was ever told that anybody flunked crutches, but I th think that some people are going to be more facile to it than others. And so I think honestly, again, being a Monday morning quarterback, I think you're going to win your case, uh, getting out of the cab of anything that crutches were probably tripped her uh, getting out of the cab mm -hmm. as, as she tried to manipulate these things because they're, they don't work well in cabs. So, uh, I'm optimistic, but I do think that there is some kind of affirmative obligation on the part of the hospital to feel comfortable that this person is capable of using these devices. That's Agreed. why I always like a family member there. Right. If I can get a family member in the room, first of all, they testify that the nurse or whoever it is taught them. Number two, they realize how hard this is. And, you know, I always like a phrase like, well, you love your mother, don't you? So you're <laughs> going to help her. I mean, what's, it, what's she going to say in front of the old lady? No, I don't love her. And uh, how important it is that family be there when she moves up and down the hall or gets out of a cab at 42nd Street in New York. Uh, <laughs> all these things uh, play in. But I think this case also shows the differences in states. In South Dakota, I don't even think this would be a case. No. Uh, in, in New York city, it's, it's uh, damn near a million bucks. And, uh, it's, it's just strange to me that for how you taught how to use crutches. And by the way, how do you teach somebody how to get out of a cab with a pair of crutches? I, I don't know how that happens. I think yeah. it's over and beyond. And I think that, uh, it, this is, uh, hopefully they're going to appeal this, uh, um, this verdict. I think the other thing, this is a, is a nuance, but one of the things that happens when you see somebody using crutches and they don't, and they're, fu they're fumbling all over the place, you make the decision, okay, let's get them a walker. You know, the walker is the kind of the next thing down, which is kind of like safer than crutches kind of thing. And right. uh, you do make that decision that you have a couple of options here. So, uh, it's not a, it's not a slam dunk, but yeah. Uh, and if we didn't have, te if we didn't have crutch or, uh, walkers, what would we do with old tennis balls? 
I mean, isn't that the isn't that the function of old tennis balls the, to be the, put the, out in walkers? This is true. The day glow balls, the, the they ones that really aren't in fashion anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whites yeah. come back. That's yeah. right. Well, and and I think on the crutches thing, not not to beat it to death, but what should the doctor do? Um, I think it's reasonable to have the the nurse or some other mid level give the example and the uh, the instruction. Uh, the, the doctor should still note in the record that the patient was instructed on how to use crutches and showed understanding and showed a capacity to use the crutches um, and was given kind of uh, uh, warnings on some things to avoid, such as slippery surfaces, et cetera. I mean, that takes, I just said it in 10 seconds, type that in the record and you know that'll, that'll help you later on if there's a lawsuit. Mark, we're um, running out of uh, time okay. here. We got about okay. uh, ooh, about seven or eight minutes. Are you? Do you have any parting have, words for us? I have a limitless number of cases, but I I would say a few parting words. Um, one of the things that I hear a lot in depositions when uh, an emergency medicine doctor is being uh, cross-examined by a plaintiff's attorney, and that is some variation of the phrase "worst first. Um, you know, did you think worst first, uh, the patient came in with a headache. Did you think that there was a possibility of a brain tumor? Uh, should you have, you know, obtained the CT scan, the MRI, should you have consulted with the neurologist? And the follow-up questioning of that is what is the downside to doing so? What is the downside to mm -hmm. uh, obtaining the CT scanner or, or, or reference, you know, uh, consulting with the neurologist? I can give them the downside. Well, you, know, you you've got to you've got to realize that no other country looks at it this way. If you decide to get an MRI, how much time does that take? How right. much time do you tie up a valuable resource which you may need? You know, the guy in the next bed may be having at that moment in time a dissecting aorta. Yes, but but Greg, Mark, Mark's talking about cases now in front of a jury where, right. where the the doctor is yeah. being attacked, and this That's logic how they take of was first. Of yeah. Worst first is fairly compelling kind of logic that he's going going through. Well, because everybody's nightmare. I mean, when you have a twinge, you start thinking this this isn't going away and this could be something fairly significant. And if the doctor doesn't have that same feeling, the plaintiff's attorney is going to exploit it. So what is the answer to these things? Sometimes I'll see doctors make a mistake and talk about it in terms of resources. Um, oh God! How much oh it God. costs, or the time it takes, and the only compelling answer is that it was not medically indicated. And you've got to note in your record why it wasn't indicated, why you didn't consult the neurologist on the headache, why you didn't proceed with the MRI. You've got to be able to have the three or four bullet points that will allow an expert like you to come forward and say. He reasonably addressed it, reasonably ruled it out, and proceeded down a more likely path. And that can buy us some time and some defense. So the key is to establish that it was not indicated. If you can't establish that it was not indicated, then you better do it. <laughs> uh, it, it needs to be based on medical indications, not on cost, etc. cetera. Um, another tidbit I'd like to throw out is follow-up instructions. Um, to the ER docs out there, don't rely on just the, the inserts from that the hospital has put in. I would take the time to enter um, to make sure 
that that patient is told to return if it does not improve or if it worsens. Not just if it worsens, but if it does not improve. They're not going to, but you need that as a protective net to say, I told them to come back if this didn't get any better. Mark, Secondly, there's a third thing uh, there. Uh, if it's not improving, uh, uh, if it's persisting, or what about new symptoms developing? Well, now I've got a fever. I didn't have a fever before. So I think those right. are the three. Yeah, no, that's excellent. And, and have that in there. But the other thing is, I don't know why an emergency medicine doctor would write, follow up with your cardiologist in five to seven days. Just write, follow up with your cardiologist next business day. But to put the honest on the patient mm -hmm. to get in and see that specialist mm -hmm. ASAP. Don't give them a window that's five to seven days down the road and they die of the heart attack at day three. You've given the plaintiff's attorney now some leverage. Say next business day because it might save the guy's life, but it's going to save you because you've gotten them there punctually. And finally, um, I have a case right now I'm handling on for the medical board where the, the, the patient was kind of loony. And she was going kind of nutty, sitting in the hallway, yelling, uh, was refusing tests, had gotten some tests, but was just out of control. They they escorted her out. She was invited to leave the emergency room. Well, then a bunch of tests came in. And those tests actually turned out to be normal. But my question to the doctor was, did you communicate that information to the patient? And she said, no, we didn't. And I say, yes, you should have. You should call the patient and say, I know things didn't end well here. I want you to know that that MRI was normal. And heaven forbid if the test that comes back is not good news and they've left the ER, you've got some obligations to communicate that information. Oh, and we've actually sent, we've sent the police to their house. We've done uh, we've done all kinds of things. I mean, registered yeah. letters in the old days now uh, we can send them emails, we can call their phone. Uh, but I, you know, again, the police, we do enough good stuff for the police and, and they know we cover their ass a lot. They're happy to go do something like that for us. It, and it's, it's useful. It's very I, useful. That's, I think that's excellent. It, I know that some doctors may be rolling their eyes and saying, geez, what else can I do? But I want you to envision yourself in front of a jury in two years. And I want that. I want to be sitting next to you when that jury has a look on their face of what else could he have done? What else could she have done? They really want the extra mile mm -hmm. to try to solve this situation for a very difficult patient. And they're going to give you some latitude if the, if the result is bad. So those are some uh, little tidbits, but, uh, anyway, gosh, I love being with you guys and, um, it's such an honor to try to help doctors because that's still the best profession in the world. Doctors who are uh, helping people, uh, with, with their health and with their lives. So thank you for this chance. Well, we really appreciate your time. Obviously, uh, you've done a lot of this. You've seen most of the pitfalls we can fall into and understand that uh, ours is the business of any in medicine that interacts with the rest of the society. Uh, law, uh, social work, uh, all these sorts of things, they all come to rest in the emergency department at some point in time. And somebody said, what's your real job in the department? And I said, pretty much I'm a social worker. And my biggest job is forcing other doctors 
to do what their Hippocratic oath says they should do anyway. Uh, and, you know, most other emergency docs uh, shake their heads and say, yeah, that's that's kind of what we do. <laughs> well, Rick, are we ready for wine of the month? Well, listen, Greg, we're running over uh, a little bit. Uh, so do, do you have something really rock'em sock'em or can we defer this till next month? Yeah, I had a great wine. It's called Sequoia Grove. California, uh, Cabernet 2015, Napa Valley, and it's a third the price of uh, what some of the big names are now getting in California. Sequoia Grove 2015, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, and the word is they're going to be selling with a different label on it some of this stuff to Costco. So go get it. It'll be even cheaper when Costco's got it, I'm sure. You bet. Yeah. Hey, Mark, uh, uh, it's really a pleasure being with you. Your years of experience and wisdom really show through in your comments. And um, it's something that we can't do uh, as 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 on the physician side of this. So thanks so much for taking the time with us. And I, I if it's OK with you, it won't be two years since we get to talk to you again. That's a deal. I'd love to do it as frequently as you want. Terrific. Good. Thanks All so much. Right. All right. You guys take care. Have a good summer. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.